Welcome back to another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. We're going to have a lot of fun today. It's going to be awesome. Zach, are you ready for it? Yeah, man. We got to talk about the people who got the COPDs. The COPDs. <laughs> As always, guys, check out ninjanerd.org. Grab a membership. Check out some notes, illustrations on this topic. We have a whole bunch already there. So please do check that out. I think you'll find a great benefit to it. But, Zach, let's go ahead and kind of map out an easy way of remembering COPD. First, everyone, we're going to go ahead and start by discussing the two types of COPD. Then help me to really differentiate these based on four categories. Definition, pathophysiology, clinical features, and lastly, physical exam. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Zach, COPD, that is chronic bronchitis and emphysema. My boy, good. I got it. I got it. Hey, I, I learned a lot from you sticking around here. Uh, so, yeah, if we were to go through this and talk about the way Rob kind of divvied that out, which is the two parts of COPD, that being emphysema and chronic bronchitis. If we talk about this with respect to the definition of emphysema, it's really kind of just simplified as the dilation and destruction of the lung parenchyma. There's a lot of like these elastases that are really breaking down the connective tissue. And what happens is when that kind of pathophysiology takes over is that this tissue destruction really kind of decreases the surface area of the alveoli, which is particularly that area for gas exchange. On top of that, when you destroy some of the connective tissue, the bronchioles aren't able to stay open, and so they collapse really easily. And the whole problem with that is that if there's a decreased area for gas exchange and the bronchioles are collapsing, we have a hard time being able to exhale CO2 out of the actual chest and into the atmosphere. And so you build up a lot of CO2 in the blood, and this is causing hypercapnia in these emphysema patients. Relatively mild hypoxemia. That's a very important point to remember, guys. When we talk about chronic bronchitis, on the other hand, the definition is really kind of more specifically a clinical decision uh, and a clinical definition. So we say the patient is at a productive cough. So a cough that's really nasty, productive of a lot of sputum for at least three months within a year for two consecutive years. I'll say that again, a productive cough for three months out of the year for two consecutive years. Now, the pathophysiology behind this is really kind of an inflammation and mucus production within these smaller bronchial airways. And what that does is that kind of blocks off airflow into the alveoli, which causes VQ mismatch. And so there's a decrease in ventilation to the alveoli, less oxygen moves into the blood, less CO2 moves from the blood into the alveoli. And so because of this, you develop hypoxemia and hypercapnia. The problem with chronic bronchitis is that this hypoxemia is actually pretty severe, enough that it puts a lot of strain on the pulmonary vessels and causes them to really vasoconstrict. And that increases the pressure of the pulmonary circulation, causes the right heart to struggle and cry because of that pressure, and then eventually it can fail, which we call core pulmonale. The other aspect of these is really differentiating the based upon clinical features and physical exam. This is a really challenging point, but the clinical features of emphysema is really just the patients have severe dyspnea. And the primary reason is because they air trap. They trap so much air in their chest because, again, their alveoli aren't participating in gas exchange and their bronchioles are collapsing. And so their lungs are just dilating and getting huge. And so imagine having these filled up lungs and you got to take a deep breath on top of those already filled lungs. That's so difficult. And so they're taking really small volumes. And so they have to keep breathing at a fast rate and it's very uncomfortable for them. So I think that's one of the key features to take away. Whereas with chronic bronchitis, the key feature is copious sputum production. Thus the definition that productive cough for three months out of the year for two consecutive years. Now, emphysema is really interesting. The physical exam, one of the things that you can actually see in these patients is this pursed lip breathing, if you will. Now, now why do they do that? 
Is that why they call them pink puffers? Yeah, it's actually pretty cool. So, so one of the reasons why, I don't know if they, how they figured this out, but the basic concept is that whenever they kind of purse their lips during exhalation, it slows their exhalation. It kind of keeps air in the chest, increasing their airway pressures and really preventing those bronchioles from kind of collapsing. And what that does is that helps to be able to kind of allow for a better air movement out of the chest, kind of decreasing the air trapping and allowing for it to be easier for them to breathe. So that's kind of a cool thing. The other thing with these patients is that because they air trap and they have a lot of air in their chest, their total lung capacity, the residual volume is really high, that again, it's really hard to take deep breaths in. And so because they can't take deep breaths in, they're very shallow tidal volumes. They have to breathe at a faster rate to compensate for those low tidal volumes. And imagine breathing fast and shallow so much 24 hours out of the day, how much energy and muscle use are going to go into that? These patients can literally chew through so much energy and they can actually look kind of a cachectic appearance as well. So additionally, the air trapping, not only does it cause this kind of increased respiratory rate, we know that that happens generally because they're taking in these very shallow, very decreased tidal volumes. So there's not a lot of airflow moving in and out of the lungs. And so think about that. Whenever you put the stethoscope on the chest, you may hear some decreased breath sounds because of that. Now, that covers the physical exam for emphasis. The other aspect here is the physical exam for chronic bronchitis. Now, this one I got. <laughs> Before it was pink puffers. Now we got the blue bloaters. Am I right? That's right, my All man. All right. Yeah. So exactly. These patients often have very severe hypoxemia. And what happens is this causes that intense kind of like pulmonary vasoconstriction, increase the pulmonary vascular resistance, increase the blood pressure in the pulmonary circulation, which can put a lot of stress on that right heart, leading to right heart failure. Now, imagine whenever the right heart stops pumping blood, it backs up, backs up into the jugular vein, causing jugular venous distension, backs up into the abdomen and causes a patomegaly, ascites backs up into the lower extremities and causes peripheral or pedal edema. So they start swelling up. On top of that, whenever patients are severely hypoxemic, they can actually look cyanotic. So having a bluish discoloration of different parts of their skin and areas of their body. So it's a very interesting type of appearance. Now, the other thing is that they have a lot of mucus kind of like clogged up within their smaller airways. So whenever they take a breath in, it might kind of sound like a snoring kind of respiration. And we call that ronca. Whenever they cough and clear some of the secretions, the actual ronca sounds go away. Also during expiration, some of the air that's actually kind of moving across that mucus within the airway can also cause a lot of wheezing to occur as well. So that would cover, I think, in the basic gist of it really, Rob, the, the definition, the pathophys, the clinical features, and lastly, the physical exam with respect to differentiating the two types of COPD, that being emphysema and chronic bronchitis. All right. We're cruising right now. We're, we're flying through this one. It's such a huge topic, and I think you're kind of tackling it perfectly right now. Thanks, man. So what we got next, Zach, we have to go to the next step now, which is how do patients get the COPDs? <laughs> do you just need to smoke like a chimney all day with five? <laughs> you know, you got five cigs in each hand, just smoking it like a harmonica. <laughs> Exactly. So, so I mean, think, I mean, seriously though, you got to be smoking a lot. Yeah. So it really is true. Like cigarette smoking is definitely going to be the number one cause for sure in COPDs. However, I think it's really important to not forget um, two other kind of things. Last one, it would be kind of like a, a less likely one, but pollutants would be a, a potential one. Think about those biomass fuels. But another one that I really think is important, especially for your boards, is alpha one antitrypsin deficiency. So sometimes what can happen is these patients are usually less than forty five years of age, which is a young age to actually develop this. Generally their lower lobes are more likely affected. Whereas patients who actually smoke or older, it's more likely their upper lobes that are affected in COPD, particularly emphysema. And on top of that, if they have less than 45 years of age, again, they have lower lobe kind of COPD involvement, emphysematous type of appearance. And on top of that, they have an unexplained liver disease. You really want to go thinking about this type of disease. So I would really consider that in these patients. 
Awesome. It's just interesting. I, you know, you would think, you know, in my mind, cigarette smoking, hundred percent, that's your go-to. Absolutely. But there's way more to it then. Yeah, definitely. Don't forget about that alpha one antitrypsin deficiency. Do you know the, the the differences? Why it would affect the upper lobe versus the the lower lobe? No, that's a great question. I'm not completely sure as to why, but they they kind of the way that they look for that is that generally, whenever you think about someone has emphysema, um, and they smoke, they just I don't know why they kind of they say smoke kind of rises to the top and stuff like that. So you can think that the upper lobes are generally going to be more involved in those smokers right. who have that classic emphysema, whereas those who are going to have those lower lobe kind of emphysematous changes. You're going to see classically with those alpha one antitrypsin deficiency. Well, at the very least, it might be a good differentiation as a student. Hey, I got to know which one's which. You can remember that, and that'll that'll surely help you out. Absolutely. All right. So, Zach, I got someone coming into the Ninja Nerd Clinic. They are breathing like your French bulldogs, <laughs> and, and Ninja Nerd's like, let me tell you, like when yeah. his bulldogs are on a walk in the hot sun. <laughs> oh my gosh, I got to play. I have to play a clip. I'm going to find a clip of that. You guys have to hear it. Yeah, just. <laughs> <laughs> but help me help me diagnose this patient with COPD. What do we have to do? Absolutely. So I think the basic thing is remember primarily three initial tests and then one kind of like helpful definitive test. So I think any kind of patient who comes in with difficulty breathing, they have any dyspnea, they have a little bit of hypoxemia, tachypnea, anything of that nature. It's not a bad idea to at least get three basic tests, a chest X-ray, ABG and an EKG. So what I really like about the chest X-ray is that it could potentially rule out any other pathologies. So do they have an underlying pneumonia? Do they have pulmonary edema? Do they have ARDS? Do they have a pneumothorax? Things of that nature. But also when you look at a chest X-ray, it's not super diagnostic, but it may help you. So classically in your exams, they'll say, oh, the patient has a flat kind of diaphragm. They have let me stop you there because I'm going <laughs> to let me stop you there. I'm sorry to interrupt engineers, but I know this one. Do you? I got this one. Hit me. We're talking about hyperinflation. We got a flat diaphragm and possibly even some bullet. Oh my gosh. He's so good, man. That's absolutely right. So yeah, definitely with these patients, you want to look for that on their chest Ooh. x-ray. <laughs> The next thing is get an ABG. Now, in truth, I'm not the biggest fan of ABGs here, but if you really get them, they may show you a couple things. One is they may show you that the patient may have hypercapnic respiratory failure. These patients are obviously CO2 retainers. And so because of that, you may see an elevated CO2. And what happens is as your CO2 goes up, it actually causes your protons to drop within the blood and that causes an acidosis. So you may see a chronic respiratory acidosis in these patients. However, you may also see hypoxemia because these patients are hypoventilating. So if they're hypoventilating, they're not bringing as much air into their alveoli. And if you guys remember from an acute respiratory failure lecture that we generally say that whenever patients are hypoventilating, not bringing enough air in, this causes a normal AA gradient as compared to an increased AA gradient that you would see with like a VQ mismatch or a shunt type of problem. So that'd be a big thing to think about. So chest x-ray, ABG, and then an EKG may be helpful. I think one of the best things about this is really kind of ruling out any other etiologies. Like, do they have a STEMI? Um, do they have any evidence of like, you know, right heart strain from a pulmonary embolism? Or is this just evidence of right heart strain due to pulmonary vasoconstriction? So sometimes you want to look for like right ventricular hypertrophy, maybe a right bundle branch block, maybe kind of any evidence of right atrial enlargement as well. So those would be three initial tests. After that, if I have a high degree of suspicion that I've ruled out a lot of other causes and I have a strong kind of pretest probability, I think the best thing is going to be PFT, so pulmonary function test. When you do a pulmonary function test, what you're looking at is you're looking first at what's called the FEV1, so the force expiratory volume within one second over the force vital capacity. You're looking at the ratio, and whenever they say that the ratio is less than 70%, this is concerning for obstructive pulmonary diseases. So what you want to look at first is what's their FEV1? Is it really, really low? Because if their FEV1 is really, really low, they also have the FEV1 
over FEC less than 70%. Again, very suggestive of, again, an obstructive lung disease. Then you want to look, do they have a high total lung capacity and a residual volume? That's, again, suggestive of an obstructive lung disease. One of the big things is that you might have difficulty differentiating asthma from COPD, right? So, what they do is they do what's called a bronchodilator test. So they look at your FEV1 naturally for this patient. Then they give them albuterol. After they give them the albuterol, they measure the FEV1. They remeasure it and say, okay, did it improve? Because if it improved, that means that this is reversible, more suggestive of asthma. If it didn't improve, it's likely irreversible, more suggestive of a COPD. And so in these patients, after you give them a bronchodilator, their FEV1 won't increase more than 12%. And that's one of the key features here for COPD as compared to asthma. Asthma. On top of that, if you're really trying to say, how do I know if it's emphysema, chronic bronchitis? If you really wanted to, you can go down the depths of checking that DLCO, the diffusion kind of limitation of carbon monoxide. And generally that's really low because of a decreased surface area um, and emphysema. So again, low DLCO and emphysema, normal in a patients with chronic bronchitis. So that's how I kind of go about the kind of the diagnostic kind of walkthrough there. Alrighty. Before we get into some management here, I am curious, Zach, you said you're not the biggest fan of an ABG. Is that just because it's not that diagnostically helpful in this scenario? I think it can kind of like cause us to have a little bit of cognitive dissonance and to kind of treat a number. So I think whenever patients have ABGs and they come back and I can kind of look at the patient and have an idea of what their ABG may look like. And also their ABG may kind of tell me a bunch of things that doesn't help me in the grand scheme of things. So if I'm getting it to kind of look at an acid-based balance, oftentimes I can look at the patient, if they're breathing really, really fast, um, I can have an assumption that they're probably going to have some degree of a respiratory alkalosis. Had they been having it for a long time, there may be some compensation there um, from the kidneys. If they're breathing really, really shallow, kind of like very, not very large tidal volumes, then I can probably have some degree of suspicion that they'll have a respiratory acidosis. And again, getting an ABG to determine if someone's hypoxemic, I don't think that's necessary because you can look at the pulse ox and have a pretty good idea of what their SpO2 is. Right. Now, I would say if their pleth on their SpO2 is kind of like not really kind of good, it doesn't look accurate, um, then you can consider getting an ABG to really kind of verify. But again, I don't think poking in them in the big red is always that necessary. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> now that, that makes sense. I was just curious. I mean, overall, you're going to say what PFTs are going to be the most superior? Yeah, I would say that if you're really trying to diagnose a patient with COPD, the PFTs are going to be the best test. Awesome. Chest X-ray, ABG, EKG, just helpful kind of really like rule out and maybe provide some adjunctive support. Sure, support be very kind of thorough. Features. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Sounds great. So then let's go ahead and move into the next part here. Let's go ahead now, Zach, and say we take two scenarios here. I have one patient who is just diagnosed with COPD. Take me through that chronic COPD management. Now, the next scenario I would like is that if we have a patient just diagnosed with COPD who comes into the clinic with an exacerbation of their COPD, tell me how you would acutely manage that patient. So All overall, right. we got the chronic management and then maybe an acute exacerbation. Gotcha. Yeah. So when a patient has chronic like COPD and they're kind of just going through the process of what kind of things can I do for this patient that would decrease their mortality? And that's really the question that you need to be able to ask. And so there's really three particular things that decrease the mortality in patients with COPD. One is reducing the risk of them developing pneumonia. And so obviously getting them vaccinated for influenza, getting them vaccinated for pneumococcal vaccines. Um, these would be really, really big things that lower mortality. The second one is smoking cessation. Stop smoking the death six. Like <laughs> that's really important. Yeah. So stop doing that. That's going to prevent the progression of the disease, the worsening of the disease. And lastly, and really, really important is oxygen therapy. So supplemental oxygen, putting them on nasal cannula O2. In those situations, there's two 
primary criteria. One is that the patient who has COPD has an SpO2 that's less than 88%, okay, on their actual SpO2. If you do poke them in the beta grad and get an ABG, you can check the PaO2, and if that's less than 55 millimeters of mercury, you can put that patient on a couple liters of oxygen, mostly for about 15, 16 hours of the day. Another indication would be if their SpO2, you can actually kind of kind of make the threshold a little bit like more sensitive where you actually catch these patients a little bit earlier. So SpO2 less than 90%. So that's a little bit higher, right? And then a PaO2, if you stick them in the big red of less than 60 millimeters of mercury. For this patient population, you have to have some other underlying problem that makes you want to start oxygen at a higher O2 saturation or a higher PaO2. And generally those two reasons, if the patient has core pulmonale, that right heart failure, or they have polycythemia, an increase in the production of red blood cells due to the chronic hypoxemia. The other things that you can do is treat their symptoms. And so symptomatic control is really important. Obviously, patients want to be able to feel better and perform their normal daily activities. And so things like bronchodilators to really kind of open up those airways and prevent the spasm that they may have and things like chronic bronchitis or emphysema could be helpful, especially long-acting ones. And patients with COPD often respond better to the muscarinic types. So what's called tiotropium, which we call long-acting muscarinic type of antagonist. And then we also have what's called a LABA, a long-acting beta agonist. And this would be things like salmeterol or fumoterol, and they're going to also, again, help to dilate those bronchus. That's the overall concept. And then another thing is reducing inflammation, especially in chronic bronchitis. And these patients have a lot of inflammation with their airways. If we reduce the inflammation, we can, again, also help to provide some symptomatic control here. So inhaled corticosteroids like budesonide or fluticasone is also important. So that would be the chronic COPD. For the acute COPD exacerbation, so a patient who you said has COPD, they come in and they're having a worsening kind of fit of their COPD. In these situations, I want to do, again, same kind of concept, bronchodilators, but I want to do short-acting bronchodilators, ones that are best used in the acute management. So things what we call this is a duoneb. And duonebs are basically, it's a it's a duo combo. So you're going to use two particular drugs. One is called ipratropium bromide, which is a SAMA, a short-acting muscarinic antagonist, and then albuterol which is a SABA, a short-acting beta agonist. And these are really going to help to open up those airways. The second thing is I really want to reduce inflammation, but intensely. And so inhaled corticosteroids aren't going to be enough. I got to up the ante and get systemic corticosteroids on board. So if the patient is able to, you know, possibly with all their intense like work of breathing, swallow a pill like prednisone, I'll give them that. If they can't and they're too unstable to be able to even talk or swallow during their breathing process, then I'll put give them what's called IV methylprednisolone. But either way, I have to give them systemic steroids to reduce the airway inflammation. This, the actual third thing is you can consider antibiotics. Now, antibiotics, there's some potential benefit, especially to azithromycin, um, because it's been shown to be able to kind of reduce inflammation within the airways. Now, if you are concerned that they have pneumonic COPD, so they have a pneumonia that caused their COPD exacerbation, you could potentially extend out the spectrum a little bit and give azithromycin as well as a beta-lactam to cover things like Haemophilus influenza, uh, maybe to cover for particular things like Morexella catarrhal, some of those common bugs in COPD years. I think the last thing that's really, really important here, Rob, because this is another thing that reduces mortality in patients who have a COPD exacerbation is BiPAP. It's actually a bi-level positive airway pressure. So it's a mask that kind of looks like a patient who have sleep apnea. They put a thing over their face. It's kind of like it's called CPAP, except it's bi-level. So you can give kind of differentiation of inspiratory airway pressure and expiratory airway pressure. So you can change the pressures when they breathe in and whenever they breathe out, whereas CPAP, it's just a constant pressure. 
But what you do whenever you use BiPAP is you create a positive airway pressure within their, their lungs, right? And what that does is that kind of stents open or keeps the bronchial and the bronchioles and the alveoli nice and open. And what that does is if you keep the bronchioles open, Imagine how much easier it's going to be able to be for these patients to exhale CO2 because, again, what do they do? They have mucus in their airways. They have inflammation. They have kind of like a collapse of their bronchioles, and so they air trap. If you open up and keep those bronchioles open, you're going to be able to get air out of the lungs. And so if you can clear a lot of that dead space, so air that's not participating in gas exchange, and allow the lungs to actually deflate, guess what? Now you're going to lower the entire residual volume, your total lung capacity, your diaphragm and chest wall can return to a normal position. You have smaller lungs that are now going to be so much easier to inflate. You can now take a deep breath and use less effort to breathe because your total lung capacity isn't at max. You're not air trapped anymore. And so that's a really, really cool thing to use for these patients because it's been shown to lower mortality. Lastly, and I would really try to avoid this at all costs is intubating a patient. If they are failing BiPAP, if they're losing their mental status, which can happen with these patients who have, um, sub, uh, particularly like COPD, if they air trap enough, their CO2 can get super, super high. They can get super somnolent and this can cause kind of like, let's call it a CO2 narcosis. So it is possible also if they have other underlying issues that's maybe kind of making it difficult for them to be able to protect their own airway or they're just refractory to their BiPAP therapy, then you may have to intubate these patients and kind of get some support on them. But generally we try to avoid that. But those are the things that I would kind of say are really, really important for a COPD patient, Rob. All right. Beautiful. Let me go ahead and just do a quick recap just for some space repetition. Even if you got this down, it never hurts to go over it a couple times. So first thing, we're going to start with our chronic COPD treatment. The biggest things you got to remember is you're going to use a long-acting bronchodilator and inhaled corticosteroids for symptom control. But the biggest three things to really lower mortality is vaccination, stop smoking those death sticks, <laughs> and of course, oxygen therapy if your qualification criteria is met. And then we have that acute COPD exacerbation. We're going to be using a short-acting bronchodilator, oral IV steroids, antibiotics, and most importantly, BiPAP. Because remember, that will definitely help to lower mortality. I love it, man. This is absolutely great. I think that that was a great explanation of um, the treatment of COPD. Alrighty. Well, then that does it for this episode. Zach, any closing thoughts before we wrap this one up? No, I think it's a it's a great um, topic. I think it's really important for many people to understand out there as a clinicians, you're going to see this disease. It is extremely common. Um, and I think it's just really important to be able to understand. I think the big things is don't really focus too much on differentiating these diseases. Oftentimes they can kind of like coexist with one another. But I would really try to understand when a patient has a COPD exacerbation, what put them into the COPD. COPD exacerbation. That's really important. I also think that really whenever you're trying to diagnose someone who has COPD, be careful, understand which tests are really going to provide the most benefit for you. Um, chest x-ray, ABG, EKG are pretty good. And again, PFTs being that most important diagnostic test. And then again, I think Rob really summated well the treatment of COPD, talking about how to differentiate them with the more chronic COPD management, as well as the acute COPD exacerbation. So I hope you guys like this podcast. I hope it made sense. And as always, until next time. 